0: Hello and welcome to the Land and Climate Podcast. My name is Alistair McEwen, and in this episode I spoke to Angela Vergara, who is Professor of History at California State University, about Chile and its relationship with mining. Recent months have thrust Chile into international headlines on mining, where the country Already the world's biggest copper supplier is seen as a major source of lithium, which is crucial for electric car batteries. And where the current Chilean government has been attempting to take greater state control of lithium extraction.
1: We call in Chile now the sacrifice zone, you know, highly polluted communities, but at the same time they depend on those jobs. It's a complex relationship, especially in a country with high level of unemployment and with few social protections.
0: Can you just take us through a little bit, first of all, why Chile has been so important in mining? And then maybe take us through, if you can, some of the history and maybe a little bit of the political economy of mining in Chile.
1: So Chile is always called a mining country. Originally, it was mostly silver, maybe a little bit of gold in the 19th century. Then there was the nitrate boom of the late 19th century, early 20th century, connected to British capital and investors. And eventually it turned to copper. So for most of the 20th century, it has been a copper mining country. It's still one of the largest producers of copper in the world. So it is very central in the world copper market. For a long time, most of the copper was owned by foreign companies. But then you had the nationalization of copper in the 1970s during Allende's year in 1971. And although there's still a very large state copper company called Codelco that plays a big and important role in the world, there's also been the entrance of new copper mining, mostly U.S., Canadian, and Australian capital that has dominated the market. In addition to copper, Chile is also a lithium country, and it has one of the largest reserves of lithium right now in the world, although that keep changing as they keep finding more lithium around the world. So that's also been central, and they all somehow concentrate in the same region, that is the north of Chile, in the Atacama Desert. So it's very unique also because of the ecosystem of the desert that is a very fragile one. So that has also shaped discussions about the region and how people perceive this region as either a mining region or something different.
0: There are so many resources in Chile and there's been so much extraction over such a long period of time. Can you say a little bit about the economic impact of that in terms of what it's meant for Chile?
1: But Chile's always said that it depends on mining, you know, on the export, on taxation, less on the labor part. There's a very small workforce. I mean, it's a complicated thing is somehow Chile has always believed that by developing mining, by controlling mining resources, they could develop. So it's a sort of a dream. In the 60s, copper was called the Wage of Chile. So the idea that you could nationalize these resources, it would somehow finance all the dreams of development. So there's always that economic importance, you know, that in order to develop, we need to tax, we need to expand, that the state needs to have a role. I think I like the concept that has been used for um, about some scholars with the idea of um, resource nationalism, you know, the idea that you use these resources in order to finance the state and social programs. And it's still very present and it's still very much in the mind of politicians of how they look at the mining sector as the source of wealth. And I want to emphasize too that because it's a wealth located in a place that is the Atacama Desert, this considered a desert and very, I would say, not really understood of how important deserts are. Is somehow they can be sacrificed on behalf of the nation and these ideas of development.
0: I suppose at the same time, the capital is very, very far away from the desert. There's a different relationship between the two areas and a, and a kind of disconnect almost.
1: Yeah, and it's always been, I mean, is on the extreme north. I used to take a bus there, and it takes you two days for the capital city to arrive there. It's very far away. And in the early part of the 20th century, it was a huge labor migration of people coming from the Central Valley to work in the north. It's also a border region with Peru and Bolivia that has its own history. So that makes it very distant somehow in the minds of people, you know, like is a frontier. And at the same time, it doesn't have the sort of fantasies of forest or natural beauty. So I would say that also plays a role of how it's misunderstood, especially from an ecological point of view.
0: Can you just say a little bit about what some of the ecological impacts have been in the Atacama Desert?
1: The most important one has been water. Mining companies have used water. And there's very little water in the desert. So the use of water has been one of the most controversial issues since the early 20th century. Like mining companies will get water rights. There's also been the impact of uh, smoke, especially smelters and other industrial mining. So there's a lot of air pollution that has affected the region. Today, Kalama, that is one of the mining capital because it's surrounded by big mining is one of the most polluted cities in Chile. That tells you a little bit about the impact of mining. Also in the north, people cannot live there anymore because it's so polluted. Only workers can be there. That has also had an impact on marine life and things like that. So I think there are many, many different um, impacts. Uh, Not all of them have been studied. I was reading a little bit more about lithium and I saw the impact that had had on the flamingo population because of the way they extract the lithium. So I think it's very complex.
0: Can you say a little bit about the relationship between employment and the extraction of copper and the kind of labor market and how that's developed over time and where you might actually see it going? Because when we had spoken to some other people about this who'd said that the more is extracted, the fewer jobs there seem to be.
1: I mean, the labor relation and the dependency between employment opportunities and extraction is very complicated. I mean, for a long time, mining jobs, especially in the copper industry, were very stable and they were high-paid jobs. I mean, they were the site of strong labor unions, especially throughout the 1960s, that they were able to negotiate benefits and salaries and early retirement and all kinds of benefits. But most of those rights went away with the dictatorship in the 1980s as the unions were heavily repressed, but also as new labor policies made possible to flexibilize the workforce. So a lot of people now in the mining industry are not permanent workers for a company, but they are subcontractors. And subcontracting create not only the lack of stability, but also the fact that they keep moving around and they're weaker unions, although they have organized and they have fought for their rights too. So that creates a a workforce that is very dependent on this mining boom and very fragile in their rights. They have also suffer, I would say, the dismantlement of the closure of mining camps. So a lot of people unlike the past where they live in very close tight communities near the mines, etc. Now they have to migrate. They have longer commutes and they're more dormitory cities instead of mining camps with social networks and communities and all of that. So that has also affected the life of mine workers. There is been a lot of more impact on their health, either because of the longest shift, either because they're commuting between low altitude and high altitude, so they don't get the time to adapt to conditions. So that has also had an impact on the workforce. But at the same time, they depend on mining. So they're against closing mines, you know, they're against reducing mining activities. So it is a complicated relationship which Many of them live in what we call in Chile now, the sacrifice zone, you know, highly polluted communities. But at the same time, they depend on those jobs. It's a complex relationship, especially in a country with high level of unemployment and with few social protections. So that makes a workforce that is... Not necessarily very pro-environmental change, you know, or protections that they depend on these mining companies, but at the same time are the first one to suffer the impact of mining.
0: Chile is at, going through a kind of crossroads in terms of its relationship with mining. There have at least been a few decisions on lithium, for example, in the last few months. I mean, I'm not sure how significant they are. Is this now a new period of reflection of whether mining is a good future for Chile?
1: It's complicated because what we were talking about before is economic dependency on mining. I mean, this dependency on extraction as a source of revenues for the state and on um, foreign exchange. So that makes it a complicated relationship. I do think there is in the current political situation and more a consciousness about the environmental impact of mining. So there is a bit more rigorous examination of what are the environmental impact of what cannot be approved, how far we can go with this um, extraction, but they need mining. And I think that's something that you see in a lot of Latin American nations in the sense that, how do you clean an industry that cannot be clean? Some of the discussion that we have today with lithium is that I mean lithium is presented as the base for clean energy. But the extraction of lithium, there's nothing clean about that. So how you continue to sacrifice certain regions in order to have clean energy. There is a stronger environmental movement today in Chile. There is a um, wider sector of the population, especially among the youth, that are more mobilized against this big mining venture. There is more consciousness about water because it's one of the huge issues affecting Chile because of the mega drought that we're having right now. But at the same time, there is this economic trap. And a lot of efforts of mining companies and a lot of advertisement was said to present themselves as clean companies hoping to invest in the environment and clean energy and all of that but then there's always something that you have to sacrifice that is the discussion today Uh, how much what are we going to sacrifice in order to have this clean energy
0: also in terms of wealth distribution from that extraction is there a discussion about improving wealth distribution from that
1: there is some discussion, and I think there is a lot that have proven increasing the taxation of mining companies. One of the discussions has been how to invest that revenues on the mining regions. You know, there is a lot of discussion today, in not only about inequality and income inequality and wealth redistribution, but also regional inequality. That all the resources go to the capital city, that is the most important city, that all the money is invested in a few programs and that the regions that are suffering the environmental consequences and are working in mind don't get anything. There is discussion about redistributing the wealth and investing in mining regions. There is discussion, about it's tied to the new constitutional discussion that we are now, so it's all very complicated now.
0: Could you explain something a little bit about that, actually, because I do think that's interesting for listeners to understand the connection between the constitution and current extraction.
1: The Constitution has been, I would say, a roller coaster of political discussion in Chile for the last almost three years. We had the first constitutional process because it was rejected in um, the past election. And the first constitutional convention and the first draft of the constitution had put environmental rights at the center of the constitution. I mean, it has a long chapter on environmental rights and also on protection of all kinds of resources and, and communities. And it was a very comprehensive set of rights with the failure of that project, we are now embarking in a new constitutional process where I don't see that environmental rights are very central. There is one proposal to say, yes, the state needs to protect the rights of nature, blah, blah, blah. But it's not that central as it used to be before, you know, in the first project. So I don't know how much of the discussion is going to come up. Because in the previous constitutional effort, there was a lot of environmental activists that got elected to the Constitution. There was a scientist from the North, Dr. Dorador. She brought a lot of that discussion to the Constitution. So right now, the far right got a lot of votes on the convention. So that's making us um, very skeptical about how much we can expect from this new constitutional process. So I think it's all up in the earth right now in Chile with that.
0: I mean, I had read that the far right had had a lot of influence in funding the initial campaigns for rejection of the constitution previously.
1: Yeah, and there was a lot of fake news and a lot of manipulation, especially of indigenous rights and all kinds of stuff. And so that's why it's making everything very complicated. And I felt, at least from reading the news, that the question of mining environmental rights has somehow disappeared. You know, it's less central on the Constitutional Convention than
0: what it used to be in the first effort. I did read about there being sometimes a quite a corrupt relationship, sometimes between, in terms of influencing the relationship between government and the mining industry in Chile, that some politicians had been paid off. And that continues.
1: Yeah, and I think that's always where is corruption or where is the strength of the mining lobby or where is pressure from foreign capital, because most of these companies are also foreign, you know, where is that the layers are to the cannabis that somehow creates this um, instability around They say, oh no, we actually, we need to approve this. So there is all this pressure, and I think going back to the idea that mining is a business, and when there's so much money invested on that, it's very easy to move forward with projects that are not really clean, you know, that advertisers clean. And I think the other thing this lobby for presenting companies as clean. As a green, as investing this green energy is also nobody checking how clean they are, and then they convince large sector of the population. Oh no, you know, that's clean energy. This is great, but then nobody knows what is the real impact of that.
0: Yes, in European Union, there's the EU battery regulation. The copper industry had lobbied the European Council to drop copper from the EU battery regulation, where actually there would have been actually much more due diligence about how copper was mined, etc. And that might have like maybe set some standards on mining. Who knows? I wonder if you feel that pressure from other countries is important as well in terms of what goes on in Chile, in terms of Chilean mining.
1: There is a lot of um, international conversation, you know, Chile engaging a lot of trade agreements. So there is a lot of pressure in that negotiation with Australia, China, and all of that. So we can't think about mining in isolation from other countries. It's part of the global market, and how companies move around, and how they invest, and all of that.
0: Is mining spread across the political spectrum? Are all politicians across the political spectrum? backing mining in the same way, or is there a kind of difference in interests across left and right
1: Yes, I would say that they all look at mining as an important business at this cornerstone of Chile development. I think there are differences on how they see the role of the state. You know, I think a lot of more political sectors connected on the neoliberal agenda and giving the private sectors a guarantee to operate. While in the left, there is still a strong idea that the state should play a role in the development of the mining sector, as well as um developing new mining venture, having a role in lithium and all of that. So I think there is an agreement that mining is important but how you're going to develop mining, what's the role of the state change? We do have a very small green party, <laughs> but it's very small. And I think in some sectors of the left, there is a stronger influence of environmental movements, which may see mining as different than traditional political parties.
0: And finally, I mean, do you think there are any lessons that, that we can easily be transferred for what's happened in Chile in terms of extraction and its history that we could learn from and maybe, if anything, do you think we could learn in that race?
1: There's a few lessons The history of Chilean mining has always taken place, as I said before, in this frontier, in this isolated region, in these regions that had, I mean, they said desert or is high altitude, that somehow seems remote and that somehow beyond their mining resources seems to have no value. But I think most scientists, experts, indigenous community, have demonstrated that it has a value beyond mining. So I think one of the lessons is to think about re- mining regions not as only mining regions, but to recognize the history that they have and their complexity. And I think only when we look at that, we can think of a more sustainable development in a sense that it incorporates other resources, other points of view, other traditions. So not thinking about mining regions as exclusively as mining. I mean, when we look more carefully, we find other ways of life. So I think that's important. And I would say the second one is to move beyond this idea that is either private or the state. I think both of them, and I think scholars have talked about that a lot. You know, resource nationalism, this has also had negative impact on the environment. You know, it has had a good impact on social rights and financing other stuff, but their environmental print or the footprint, as we like to say that, It's also negative. So I think where we can reimagine something beyond that, you know, where we can put labor rights, environmental rights and community rights more at the center of the discussion and not just the private and the state as the conflict. I think it's more than that, the conflict right now.
0: Thanks to Angela Vergara for her time. As usual, there's further reading on this subject in our podcast blurb. And do look out on our website at landclimate.org in the coming weeks, as we'll be publishing a new collection of articles exploring how extraction and the quest for raw materials for decarbonisation is developing. Do also give us feedback and a review on our podcast if you can. Thanks for listening and until soon.